0: Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. We left Peter on the roof of Simon Tanner's house in our last lesson. He went to the roof to have a time of prayer and ended up having a vision where he saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being let down to the earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles of the earth and birds of the air. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. This is found in Acts chapter 10, verses 11 to 13. In the next verse we find Peter's response, Surely not, Lord, I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. And this would surely be the case for a practicing Jew of that day. The Lord responded to him with a command, Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. Three times this happened in his vision to give strong emphasis to what the Lord was revealing to Peter. What's going to take place was extremely radical. It was outside of the understanding of the Jewish Christian church. The idea was that for Gentiles, or non-Jews, to become followers of the Jewish Messiah, they must first convert to Judaism. There had to be something very radical for the Jewish church to embrace Gentiles as authentic followers of Messiah without first becoming Jewish. To accomplish this, the Lord had Peter leave Jerusalem for a preaching tour, and during this time he would be away from the strong influence that the Mosaic Law was having upon believers. As one of the original apostles, Peter would have a strong influence upon the believers in Jerusalem and upon the other apostles. Those that went with Peter to the house of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, would become witnesses of what the Lord did in saving Gentiles without their first becoming Jewish. Here's another time when the testimony of many become a very important force in upholding what the Lord was doing. This is an earth-shaking event in the life of the infant church, but it was absolutely necessary for her not to die a slow death from becoming a closed community that kept the world at large out of Christ's church. As we continue on in this story, we will see that God gives more and more proof of what He wanted so that there could be no way any opposing forces in the church could resist what the Lord was doing. In verse 17, the next scene of this moving account takes place. While Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon's house was and stopped at the gate. The King James Version translated the opening thought of this verse as, while Peter doubted in himself what this vision, which he had seen, should mean. I don't think that Peter was questioning the validity of the vision or doubting it, though he was probably very perplexed over what it meant because it went contrary to his Jewish heritage. Nonetheless, I believe he knew that it was from God. The challenge Peter had was in gaining the right interpretation of the vision, and the Lord was going to make sure he correctly understood the message, for it was too important for Peter to get this wrong. The Lord made sure there was strict economy of time in all these events, for it didn't take very long from the time the vision ended to when the men from Cornelius was seeking Peter at Simon Tanner's door. This was probably a good thing, because if Peter thought too hard and too long about the vision, without being given the proper interpretation, he might either say that it wasn't from God or come up with a very wrong meaning. The opening of the door of salvation to the Gentiles was radical, far more radical than we understand today. It would take a very powerful influence from God to convince Peter, and then later, the apostles in Jerusalem that God was going to save the Gentiles without first becoming Jewish. In verse 18, we are told that Cornelius' servants called out asking if Simon, who is known as Peter, was staying there. They had traveled roughly 30 miles to get to the tanner's house around noon. How far people can walk in a day depends on the person, and in the account we are studying, it would depend upon the condition of three people. Since they lived in a culture that predominantly walked wherever they went, they were in better condition to walk that distance. Their walking shoes, which would have been sandals, would affect how far they could travel in a day, along with their level of fitness and experience in walking. There are other factors that will determine how far people can walk in a day, such as the weather, the speed they can walk, their height and stride length, and the terrain that they have to travel people that have all the right conditions and health could travel 30 miles in 10 or so hours, but given that the men arrived at Simon's house around noon would imply that they spent the night along the way. The men had been given good instructions to find Simon the Tanner's house, both the angel who visited Cornelius and the locals who pointed them to the exact location. It's wonderful and astounding how the Lord can orchestrate the events of people while never violating their free will, and we see this in verses 19 and 20. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you, so get up and go downstairs. Do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Throughout this divinely choreographed event, Peter was maintaining a relationship with Jesus by being in the place of blessing. This is a very important principle that is integral to developing genuine men and women of God. If you aren't living right with Jesus, then you aren't in the place of blessing, and this has nothing to do with money, but as the account we are studying reveals, it's being used of God for the glory of God. If Peter wasn't a man of prayer, then he would have never been in the place of blessing so that he could receive the vision in the first place and then be sent to the house of Cornelius. He would have then never been the man God used to see the door of salvation open to the Gentiles, and this is huge." If Peter wouldn't have been faithful, then the Lord would have passed him by and used a man who was. If you want God to use you in a greater way, then you must become a disciple that is quick to obey whatever the Lord commands and abide in Christ in a place of blessing. To do this, you must die to your sinful nature and your own agenda and become a person who quickly obeys the Lord's command no matter the cost. Holy Spirit spoke to Peter and told him to go with these Gentiles. Because he had sent them, and he told Peter to do this without hesitation. What would it mean if Peter had hesitated in going with the men because of his Jewish upbringing that forbid Jews from associating with Gentiles? It would have meant that he disobeyed the word of the Lord, that he was in rebellion against God. There is only one right response Peter could have given, and that was to explicitly obey the voice of Holy Spirit. Anything else would have been rebellion and unbelief. Another point in these two verses that's very important is that we get a look at how the early church viewed Holy Spirit. It's thoroughly obvious that they didn't view Holy Spirit as an impersonal force, but as a person. And it, or force, doesn't have the ability to speak because speech comes out of intelligent personality. For all practical purposes, a vast portion of the American church has rejected the Trinity, which is sound, biblical truth that's absolutely necessary to believe for anyone who wants to be a follower of Jesus. A church or denomination's tenets of faith may correctly declare that they believe in the Trinity, but if they have rejected the work of Holy Spirit, then they really aren't believing in the Trinity. Though they doctrinally assert that Holy Spirit is a person, the third person of the Trinity, they treat Him like an unwelcomed, impersonal force that's not allowed in their churches. They deem that Holy Spirit is too messy and uncontrollable to allow Him free reign in the church and in the life of the people. If God is good and always does what's right and just, and if Holy Spirit is God, then He will always do what is good, right, and just. Always. Since this is a fact about the person and nature of God, why do people, churches, and whole denominations reject Holy Spirit and His outpouring, which can only produce good fruit in those who submit to the Spirit? Now here's a scary thought. To reject one person of the Trinity is to reject the one true God, because He is indivisible or unable to be divided. There's no way that people can have the Father and Son and not have the Holy Spirit or to believe only in Jesus and reject the Father and Spirit. The Lord is a perfect, infinite unity, and when people reject Holy Spirit, they are rejecting God. When they refuse to let Holy Spirit move in their church or life, they are refusing to let God in their church or life. The abuse of the workings of the Holy Spirit will never justify the rejection of the Spirit. Both are abuses and distortions of correct doctrine and practice. When we see abuse, our goal should never be to reject what is true, but to learn from others' abuse so that we don't fall into the same trap ourselves. At the same time, we should be striving to be people of the Spirit that glorify God to the greatest extent possible. When people are hostile to the Holy Spirit, they reject anything that's done by the Spirit. Then they attack those who are trying to live by the Spirit by claiming that such people are either operating through the works of the flesh, the devil, or our unsaved people who are deceived. These are the same kind of accusations that were leveled against Jesus. So why should believers be shocked when pop preachers and local pastors tout such lies? There were Pharisees in Jesus' day, and there are Pharisees in our day. Now, I'm not saying that everyone who attacks and condemns spirit-filled believers aren't saved. It's sad to say that many of them have been taught lies and continue believing them, in spite of what the Bible teaches. These lies run amok in certain doctrinal circles that claim to be faithful to God's Word, yet refuse to believe the plain teaching of Scripture on the work of the Spirit. They are merely parrots parroting what other parrots have said before them. Though this is thoroughly wrong, it doesn't mean that they aren't saved. Yet to attribute the work of Holy Spirit to the work of demons is a very dangerous thing to do and Jesus spoke some very strong words against those who do such things. By resisting and grieving Holy Spirit, people have developed a spiritless version of Christianity that's not based upon the sound teaching of Scripture. There are some people who vehemently attack Spirit-filled believers that aren't saved because they have so aggressively fought against Holy Spirit that they have become enemies of God. The Lord is the just judge and he will deal with every person according to his or her spiritual condition, because he knows the absolute truth about everyone. In verses 21 and 22, Peter went down and said to the men, I am the one you are looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We have come from Cornelius the centurion. He is a righteous and God-fearing man, who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to have you come to his house, so that he could hear what you have to say. Of course, we aren't given the whole introduction Peter said to these men or their response. Otherwise, what Peter said would have seemed harsh or condescending. The men told Peter their mission and then extolled the character of Cornelius. Because Peter was Jewish, these men made the point that the centurion was a righteous and God-fearing man who was respected by all the Jewish people in the area. Then they made it known that an angel had visited Cornelius, who was commanded to send for Peter. They also mentioned that Cornelius wanted to hear what Peter would have to say to them. Since an angel visited the soldier and had sent for Peter, he knew that Peter would have a very important message for him. Yet to this point, neither Peter nor Cornelius knew what this was all about, so both men had to respond by faith to the direction of the Holy Spirit. Peter responded to the men with kindness, and we see this in verse 23. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day Peter started out with them, and some of the brothers from Joppa went along. Though it wasn't Peter's home, but Simon the Tanner's, Peter's invitation was ultimately Simon's invitation for the men to stay the night. This is actually a very radical thing for Peter and Simon to do, given their Jewish heritage. Devout Jews would have never let Gentiles stay overnight in their house or wouldn't let them enter their house because they were idol worshippers who were unclean and would make the house and family unclean. The wall between Jew and Gentile was now slowly being torn down. It was proper for the Jews to be hospitable to strangers because they were once strangers and pilgrims themselves. Peter and Simon showed kindness to these men by giving them food and shelter for the night before heading back to Caesarea. An expression of quick obedience is seen in that Peter left in the morning with the men, taking with him some disciples from Joppa. From Acts chapter 11, verse 12, we know that Peter took six followers of Messiah with him to be witnesses of whatever the Lord would accomplish through this divinely ordained encounter. Taking these six disciples was probably the leading of Holy Spirit because what would take place with Cornelius and his household would need the strong support of many credible witnesses. Verse 24 confirms that they took two days to make the journey. The following day he arrived in Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them, and he called together his relatives and close friends. Cornelius knew it would take two days to reach Joppa and two days to return with Peter. During the four-day interval, Cornelius told the story about his encounter with the angel to many people, so he had a gathering of people at his home waiting for Peter's arrival. This is a wonderful expression of faith on the part of Cornelius. Since the centurion had an angelic visitation, he had no doubt that Peter would come and speak to him and his family the message the Lord wanted them to know. I think it's interesting that Cornelius called together those relatives that were living in the area. Some of the relatives may have been in the Roman military, while others must have followed the centurion to Israel. This would imply that Cornelius had a long-term assignment to Caesarea. We get another glimpse of the heart of Cornelius in that he loved his family, friends, and servants enough to invite them to hear what the Lord would speak to them. He wanted God's salvation to come to all those he held dear to himself. Verses 25 and 26 tell us what happened when the traveling party arrived. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, he said, I am only a man myself. One ancient manuscript of the book of Acts had written in the margin, but as Peter drew nigh to Caesarea, one of the servants ran before and told that he was come. Then Cornelius leaped up and met him, and falling at his feet, he worshiped him. Though the addition of the servant running ahead of the traveling party isn't original, given the culture, This is probably exactly what happened. And the excitement of Peter's coming to Cornelius was so great, it's believable that the centurion leaped up to meet the apostle at the door. The question needs to be asked, did Cornelius actually worship Peter as a god? The King James Version translated the Greek word as worship, which can refer to the worship of God or to honor being given to a person that's in a higher station in life, such as to a king or governor. Since Cornelius had abandoned the pagan worship of Rome and their pantheon of gods, it's hard to imagine that he fell back into this old, idolatrous practice and belief. This is why the 1984 NIV translated the verse as Cornelius falling at Peter's feet in reverence, not worship. The expectation Cornelius had of Peter's coming, which was announced by an angel, would have had the man imagining some strange things in an effort to determine what it all meant. It was an expression of joy for the centurion to leap up to meet Peter. Cornelius prostrated himself before the apostle as an expression of the highest act of civil respect he could offer, which was common in that day and culture. There is nothing in what Cornelius did that forces us to say that he worshiped Peter and had therefore rejected the true worship of God. It was common for people to prostrate themselves before superiors, especially in Middle Eastern and Asian countries. The fact that Peter made Cornelius get up and then said stand up, I am only a man myself does, from our 21st century American cultural perspective, give the feel that the soldier was endeavoring to worship Peter. But when we look at the culture, it is more likely that Peter was saying, I am no one special or I don't deserve such a response. Peter was letting Cornelius know that he was just an ordinary man, not someone of elevated rank or great spiritual distinction who would be angry if he wasn't given the proper deference. The way the King James Version translated the verse presents the idea that Peter reached down to pick up the man and then said, Stand up, I myself am also a man. It seems like Peter was helping Cornelius get up to his feet while telling him that he was just a man. In verse 27, we find the greeting that takes place between Peter and Cornelius. Talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. The account states that Cornelius met Peter at the door, fell at his feet, and was then lifted up by Peter as the apostle corrected him. My guess is that Cornelius was overwhelmed with all that had happened and with Peter's coming, so that he was rather amiss on the proper protocol for greeting an honored guest that comes to your home. It seems like Peter did the main talking, which was probably a more formal kind of greeting that was customary in that culture. After the formal greeting was finished, Peter fully entered the Gentiles' house, along with those disciples who accompanied him. This is a very radical thing for those disciples to do, given the culture of the early church. Cornelius did such a good job of telling people about the vision and the coming of Peter that he filled his house to overflowing. We see that Cornelius was evangelizing for Jesus even before he came, one of his followers or even knew what he was doing. Peter began talking to the people by laying out his Jewishness in verses 28 and 29, stating, You are well aware that it's against our law for a Jew to associate with a Gentile or visit him. But God has shown to me that I should not call any man impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? It wasn't Peter's response to degrade the people who had gathered at Cornelius' house by pointing out that the Jews were forbidden to associate with Gentiles. I think it's safe to say that most people in that house knew this Jewish cultural norm, so that what Peter said to them wasn't a shock. His purpose in making that point was to show the transition that was taking place that even Peter didn't understand. During the journey to the centurion's home, Peter had a lot of time to think and discuss his vision with the other disciples, possibly even with the servants that was sent to get him. By the time they reached Cornelius' home, Peter had settled the issue, and I would imagine that Holy Spirit was powerfully inspiring him and the other disciples to understand the vision and its import. By this one statement... God is showing me that I should not call any man impure or unclean proves how firmly Peter understood the vision and had accepted that this was from God. The dividing wall between Jew and Gentile, which was the Mosaic Law, was being torn down through Jesus and His work on the cross. This was revolutionary. People weren't ceremonially unclean because they were Gentile and clean because they were Jewish both Jew and Gentile were unclean in their natural self. Only through the cleansing blood of Christ could they be morally and spiritually clean. Through the blood of Christ, both Jew and Gentile could stand before God as equals because they would be both adopted by God through faith in Jesus. Grace would equally be poured out to Jew and Gentile, and this would help tear down the religious pride that caused the Jews to think that they were God's people merely because they were descendants of Abraham. How far Peter thought through the implications of what it meant for this dividing wall to be torn down, we have no way of knowing. We can tell that the vision and the word Holy Spirit spoke to him was powerfully convincing him that the Lord was doing a very radical work, and at the end of this day, Peter would get a glimpse of what it was. We see from Peter's quick obedience one powerful benefit, which was the testimony that, when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. His quick obedience enhanced his testimony and would be a source of comfort to those in the house, knowing that he didn't come begrudgingly, but willingly. This can make all the difference between people accepting or rejecting our message. If they accept us, they will at least hear our message. But if they reject us, they will reject our message, no matter how good that message may be. Peter then respectfully and kindly asked, May I ask why you sent for me? I think it's interesting how the Lord brought these two men together without telling them anything except for the bare minimum to accomplish the task. Cornelius was told to send for Peter, but wasn't told why. Peter was told by the Lord that he wasn't to call any person or animal unclean, but didn't give him the reason why he told him this. Then he was told to go with these men who had come for him, but wasn't given the reason why. With both men, obedience was central to obtaining God's will. The Lord could have told each man the whole story, but that's not how the Lord works with us. Since salvation is by grace through faith, the Lord wants to build our faith so that He can do greater things in and through us. He also does this that we might grow more dependent upon Him and not upon our abilities or intellect, and this is extremely important. We grow proud and rebellious very easily, and the Lord in His love and kindness will not feed our natural propensity to pride and independence. He promised to be a lamp unto our feet, not a floodlight, so that we can see a mile down the road. It wouldn't take long before both men understood the heart and will of God in what was taking place. In verses 30-33, through 33, Cornelius answered Peter's question, saying, Four days ago I was in my house praying at this hour, at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a Joppa for Simon, who is called Peter. He is a guest in the home of Simon the Tanner, who lives by the sea. So I send for you immediately, and it was good of you to come. Now we are here, in the presence of God, to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us." As a soldier, Cornelius was direct and to the point. He told Peter and the disciples that were with him what had taken place with the angelic visitation and why he sent for Peter. He thanked Peter for coming, and then asked what message Peter had to give him, and all those gathered together. It's interesting that Cornelius made the point that they were all in the presence of God. We don't know if Cornelius had a theological understanding of the omnipresence of God, though it's possible since he was a worshiper of the Lord and had probably been instructed in the basics of the Jewish faith. I don't believe his statement is theological, but experiential. Holy Spirit was tangibly present in the house, and the centurion knew this, though he probably didn't understand it to a very great extent. I can't imagine such a monumental moment taking place without the tangible presence of Holy Spirit being there. As we continue studying this chapter, we will be given evidence that the Holy Spirit was there in a real and powerful way. This is just a guess, but it may be that Cornelius had been sitting in God's holy presence waiting for Peter to arrive, and if this was the case, there was probably an awe resting on the people. When Peter entered the house and stepped into the presence of the Holy Spirit, this would be just another confirmation that what was happening was the work of God. When you study the history of revival, such encounters with the Holy Spirit are normal. In verses 34 and 35, Peter began to speak, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts men from every nation who fear Him and do what is right. Peter heard the testimony of Cornelius, which he had partially heard from the messengers that came for him. The apostle said, I now realize, indicating that after he had heard the centurion's story, Peter knew why he had come and why he had received the vision of the sheet filled with clean and unclean animals. Peter had seen through the ministry of Jesus and what the Lord had done in building the early church that the Lord would save any Jew who wanted to be saved no matter the life that they had been living. Among the Jews, the Lord had proven that he wasn't a respecter of people, that he doesn't show favoritism. But to this point, it appeared that the Lord made a distinction between Jew and Gentile. Peter was realizing that this dividing wall was being torn down and that God would make one people consisting of Jew and Gentile. Since God doesn't change, we know that this was always his heart. But so the plan of salvation could freely be given to mankind, he chose one people group from among all of mankind. To them, he would unfold the wonders of salvation. This doesn't mean that the Lord loved Israel more than the Gentile world, but that he chose to reveal the plan of salvation through the Jews so that at the proper time salvation could be offered to the Gentiles as well. Peter proclaimed the profound truth that the Lord accepts men from every nation who fear Him and do what is right. The apostle was speaking here in general terms, that the Lord accepts all those who fear Him and do what is right according to God's definition of right. This indicates that people must know who God is as He has revealed Himself through creation and Scripture. Then they must seek for the divine grace to live out the requirements He commanded His people to live out. We can't fear God if we don't know who He is and understand why we need to fear Him. And we can't obey His commands unless we know what they are. As humans created in the image of God, we have a real responsibility to seek to know our Creator, and we are without excuse if we refuse to do so. King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, that the Lord has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the hearts of men yet they cannot fathom what God has done from beginning to end. We know deep inside that we were created for more than mere existence in this life or pursuing the evil our hearts crave. Eternity was divinely set in our hearts, deep within us. There's an ache that yearns for God, and nothing can fill or satisfy that soul thirst except God Himself. Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Come wash in the river. Come drink your fill. Let healing waters bear away.